We've all had a moment that changes everything, that instantly splits our lives into a before and an after. Change is this ever-present force shaping us all, but what exactly happens when we find ourselves at the brink of change? That's the question at the center of a new Pushkin podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. Dr. Maya Shankar hosts intimate, revealing conversations with people who have lived through extraordinary changes, like Tiffany Haddish, Hillary Clinton, Casey Musgraves, and little-known guests, too, like a young cancer researcher in the throes of a stage 4 diagnosis and a black jazz musician who convinced KKK members to leave the Klan. You'll come away thinking a bit differently about change in your own life. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. But you would think the art world, art world, let's call it the traditional art world, would be dancing in the street like whirling dervishes, thrilled at the potentiality of a whole new generation of collectors. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This month, as much of the art world is beginning to rebound from the pandemic, the art market got a major shot in the arm itself. In a little more than a week, New York's big three auction houses held a spate of absolutely mammoth art sales, bringing in a cumulative $1.3 billion and showing pretty much unequivocally that the art business is back. But one of the most remarkable things about these historic sales, to me at least, was that Artnet News' veteran market columnist, Kenny Schachter, didn't seem to care or even pay them that much mind. That's because his mind has been transported to a distant planet far away. And that planet is called NFTs. Yes, Kenny has become obsessed with non-fungible tokens, and perhaps more to the point, the possibilities that they open up for the hidebound way the art world works. Since earlier this year, he has written a series of columns on NFTs that have been pretty astonishing, and in inimitable Kenny fashion, he's made some significant money off this novel marketplace along the way. This week, we just published the latest of this series as Kenny's big debut behind our new premium Artnet News Pro membership, which we launched to provide analyst-caliber coverage for the people who want to participate in the art market. To talk about this latest column and how NFTs have changed his life, I'm very happy to have Kenny Schachter on the show today. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Kenny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very appreciative. As readers of Artnet News know, you're probably the most opinionated, provocative columnist in the art market. But that's not all. You're also an artist, a curator, a dealer, and a kind of obsessive art collector, too. This is, however, your first time on the podcast, so our listeners may not be so familiar with the phenomenon that is Kenny Schachter. So as a way of breaking the ice, here's a challenge. In one minute, could you give me a big-picture rundown of how your career in art evolved before you ever heard of NFTs? I love art, and I love to be involved in every facet of it. I've been narrowing things down, and developing things over the last 30 years, but I love to teach. You left out teaching a professor at University of Zurich, School of Visual Arts, NYU, University of Zurich. And I guess I love, I mean, this kind of like cliche of spending your whole life to learn something or like most of your life and then spend the rest sharing it. I love to learn. I teach to learn. And then I love to share information. So in a nutshell, it's really just developing different ways that I can express myself creatively and share the information and communicate with an audience of like-minded people. Okay, so let's come back to 2020. Your column was thriving, but your art business, I think it's safe to say, had hit a bit of a rough patch. 
Your one-time friend and business partner, Inigo Philbrick, had swindled you out of millions of dollars before going on the run, sparking an international manhunt and finally getting nailed by the feds. You then held the latest of your so-called hoarder auctions of your collection at Sotheby's. And I'm guessing that was to recoup your losses, right? Okay, bye. Nice to talk to you. I have to go. Thank you very much. I'll speak to you later. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, as you wrote in your column, you ended up losing money on the sale, making less money for the art than you originally paid for it. Is that an accurate description? No. Nope. I first decided to have a hoarder sale December 2019 when I was digging myself out of the morass of having lived in the UK for 15 years. I mean, I had a a gallery designed by Vito Acconci that operated only from 2002 to 2004. And when I made the determination to move to the UK, I sold the gallery, literally the physical sculptural construct that defined the gallery, sold it in two big lots at Phillips. It took four people, including myself, seven days a week for literally three to four months digging out of the mess. The sale was initially just to really lighten the load. Because I'm such a bad art dealer, having 120 lots that's orchestrated by Sotheby's and all the logistics and client interface with me not having to deal with that affords me the time to be able to curate, write, and make art and teach. And I mean, the first one, which was the stuff that I could most easily part with, that went super well. I think the only reason things didn't go as well the second time around is that we were smack in the middle of this pandemic, which is just absolutely catastrophic. So like in the last quarter sale, I kept office hours and I was in 275 years, I was the first person to sell a collection and then sit on the floor of the sales room, manning the space and trying to facilitate the sale of my own works. As far as my own art making goes, I think together I was able to develop in conjunction with Artnet, this really incredible platform to express my writing, but also to embed my articles with digital videos and manipulated photographic work. Everything is just one organic mishmash. I don't differentiate. I work seven days a week. I love what I do with great passion. And it's all the same, really, whether it's selling something, it's all kind of with a conceptual bent somehow. Okay. So you had your sale, you had a bit of a rough time in 2020 and really who didn't. And then all of a sudden, your life changed in a truly astonishing, unexpected way. Tell me, when did you first hear those three little letters, NFT? I was with a friend, Olive Allen, who's a digital artist, and we were looking at galleries together. And she mentioned these NFT and this kind of, for me, very, at the time, intangible notion of what this distribution system was to disseminate digital art into the stream of commerce. And... I scratched my head and turned sideways like a dog that is confused. I didn't really understand it. And then she mentioned that Kenny Scharf had released a few. I've been making digital videos and manipulated photographs for literally 30 years. And I was directly put in touch with Nifty Gateway, which then there was the deluge and the floodgates open. And now everyone, I made a comment like everyone and their grandmother wants to do NFTs. And then I sold my grandmother. But anyway, so I I was put in touch with Tommy Kimmelman, who was, the company was so small, he was chief financial officer and also curator. (laughs) And I mean, he was really like, you know, from making coffee to making deals. That was the extent of the company at the time. The most important thing is that NFTs were a big departure in the world. In another sense, it's just a natural progression of the advancement of technology. And it 
stems from cryptocurrency and it's probably the first practical usage for the currency. I've never seen anything so polarizing in my life. For many people, these things are off-puttingly complex from a technical standpoint. You wrote a helpful glossary on NFT terms that had some two dozen newfangled words like metaverse, hash masks, and eth plumbing. But how would you explain what NFTs are to a fourth grader? Cryptocurrency is a network of computers. It's called a decentralized network because there's no government control right now. It's completely basically organized by a network of interconnected computers And it's simply like, imagine just keeping a ledger of exchanges and information. So this ledger is computerized and it's on the blockchain. And if anyone ever sort of misbehaves amongst the peer-to-peer network, there's so many other computers that have the same information. It's bulletproof in as much as the shared network of computers sort of self-polices itself against wrongdoing. A Bitcoin is like a dollar. It's fungible. $1 is $1. They have different serial numbers, but they're basically interchangeable. It is different from another Bitcoin in as much as it has a signature, a serial number that's lodged on this computer network rather than with the U.S. Treasury or the European bank. So Ethereum is another cryptocurrency with its own computer network, and it has the distinguishing characteristic that it has the ability to have a smart contract piggybacked on it. So imagine just a very simple one-page written contract, but it's coded. In that code, it tells you, this is an art piece by Kenny Schachter. It's an edition. It has this title. It's an edition of X. And so Ethereum is different than Bitcoin in as much as each Ethereum could be unique and have its own contract attached to it. Well, I could maybe even break it down a little bit more simply, which is that for years you've been creating these incredibly detailed, imaginative, satirical videos that you've been posting on Vimeo and inserting into your Artnet columns. And you've put a lot of effort into them. There's a lot of creativity involved, a lot of people involved. But when they're finished, if I access it on Vimeo, it's for all intents and purposes the same to me as it is for any other person who presses the play button. So in other words, it's more or less fungible. Though, of course, you can sell memory sticks with the files on them, et cetera, et cetera, but it's a little bit more difficult. Then, suddenly with the blockchain, you now have a way of minting unique, traceable versions of these videos. It makes it much more easy to sell them, right? I've sold two or three memory sticks in the last five years with my videos on it. Yes, they are all for free and available. I very, very much believe in disseminating in democratizing my work, that it should be available for anyone who cares to look at it. But this system of non-fungible tokens, I released them, I made $4,000. Even though it wasn't about money per se, it did immediately dawn on me that this was revolutionary in as much as it was an entirely new system for anyone who makes work digitally to be able to communicate the work far and wide in an open marketplace And the fact that you would be able to present your work to a public, well, that's it. And importantly, there's a new audience of younger people that are born on iPhones and iPads and all other computer systems. So they're very comfortable with the notion of digital works. Really, $2 trillion of wealth came from these number-crunching banks of computers. Like, probably there's been nothing akin to this in centuries where... There has been this utterly, entirely new wealth creation from literally thin air. 
it just occurred to me that this was something jarringly different. Until then, it was really Instagram that had been the most formidable departure that I had experienced in my career over 30 years, because that really obviated the need to be in New York City or London or Cologne to be able to be an artist and have your work seen by a wider audience of people. So I I called Nifty and said, I would like to do this again sometime in late December, uh, early January. And they said, no, they wouldn't even allow me back on the platform because then the demand just absolutely mushroomed. And literally, you know, millions of people wanted to gain access to these early adapting platforms that had the widest audience to market these works. And then uh, Georgina Adam reproduced one of my NFTs again in the art newspaper. And I called back Nifty and said, look, I just had a piece that was reproduced in a newspaper some legitimate arts coverage because a lot of the early NFTs, although some are really fantastic and conceptual, which is in contravention to this, one of the many criticisms levied against this whole field is that the art is, sucks, <laughs> but it absolutely does not suck. You just have to look and scratch more than the surface to find great art, which exists. But there was a kind of aesthetic that you could see in the most casual way, which is kind of video games and screensaver type imagery. Anyway, so after I had some press for the company, they let me back on and it was so bizarre because the first feature, I've now written five features for you on this subject. I love the fact that I've given three or four lectures on the topic. I mean, I'm in my, let's say very, very, very late fifties. And the fact that I've opened my mind to learn Literally, it's been an enormous amount of work and research. But as you and I together were editing my first article on the subject, which I can never forget was February 22nd. And as we were editing my second release on Nifty Gateway, I never asked them in what manner my works were being released. The first ones were released in an edition of one, an edition of five, and an edition of 10. And I really didn't even put much thought into the pieces I did. They were recent works, but I should have paid more attention. I made 4,000. I was very grateful. I did it again, and my expectations were the same. So in this case, there's another kind of innovation that NFTs instilled, and that was open editions. So for a period of, let's say, five to 10 minutes, as many people as would buy a piece, that's how many they sell, and then it's capped and that defines the extent of the edition. They normally will send you an email with each sale. And I noticed I didn't receive any emails. About 20, 30, 40 minutes later, I started to receive some text messages that the system had crashed. And then I received like a series of 10, 20, 100, 200, 300. I sold more than 500 pieces in like a matter of minutes. And that was really probably the greatest professional success as an artist, which I never could have dreamt of. And it was a windfall financially. My third drop is tomorrow. I wrote last night that Ethereum was trading at $3,800 for one Ethereum. And today it was like 3200 So you're talking about the precipitous drops of these fluctuations of the currencies 
are with whipsaw velocity. So I'm very scared. <laughs> if this doesn't go well, I'll basically never be allowed back on Nifty Gateway again. To go back to your first big successful NFT sale, you wrote in your February column how you made $220,000 in the span of a couple of hours, which is remarkable. But maybe what's even more remarkable is the response you got for that column, because the response was huge. You basically became a guru to the NFT audience overnight. So how do you describe what the reaction was like? After this article came out, I received a thousand emails from people. Some of them were quite, I have to say, a little lacking in manners. And they were just like, get me on Nifty Gateway. I have a show. I, I mean, not even hello. So oftentimes it could be quite maddening and frustrating because it takes an enormous amount of time to reply. In any event, I mean, I've had dozens of people thanking me that their lives have been changed to the same extent that mine has. I mean, literally, I've not had one day the same since that first article and my second release came out where it's just been transformative in the best possible way. I have to say, like, because my writing is a wee little bit polemic and expressive of my particular opinions, be they good or bad, so I'm used to getting fisticuffs launched at me and death threats here and there. Few little lawsuits we won't go into right now have been threatened, but none have ever been actually lodged against us. But... Nothing prepared me for this kind of like absolute explosion of interest and the vitriol. I mean, I just think it's a human nature, a defense mechanism when people are confronted with something unfamiliar or new or uncomfortable in some way to the status quo. The first inclination is to push back and to dismiss something. But you would think the art world, art world, let's call it the traditional art world, would be dancing in the street like whirling dervishes, thrilled at the potentiality of a whole new generation of collectors, even if they're people that don't know who Barbara Gladstone is or, you know, David's Werner. And even more, you know, interestingly, they don't care who these people are. They have their own universe. They're judgmental in their own way, but not judgmental in the way that most inhabitants of the art world are today. So you would think that they would rejoice and embrace this phenomenon, but instead there's been a giant resentment. Let's dive into that for a second, because you've written that you realize NFTs are very divisive, and it's the conversation that the art world has been having nonstop pretty much since the beginning of the years, whether these things are the beginning of the future or the end of the world. And what are some of the biggest gripes that critics of NFTs have with them. So you'll hear that it's manipulation, it's a con. All of these complaints are so far removed. First of all, NFTs are just a way to register a certificate of authenticity on a computer network and then uh, exchange them. End of discussion. Another important thing is that besides the 220,000 I made, in a short period of time thereafter, I made another 100,000 from the resales of my pieces. Some people, I mean, flipping is like this boogeyman of the art world where everyone hates flippers. Everyone hates a flipper unless you're getting remunerated from their flippage. So I made another 100,000 with these kids that were buying these pieces simply to flip them on the resale market. Because you get residuals. How does that work exactly? It's built into the contract, but the thing is you have to be cognizant of the fact that some platforms, if you sell something on one platform, and then someone will buy it from a different platform, you have to be very aware, and most people are not, 
Like for instance, OpenSea is a platform where anyone can upload their artworks without a gatekeeper. But if I mint an artwork on Foundation or Super Rare, and then it's sold on OpenSea, I won't get a commission because that would be only, it would only stick with the initiating platform. You can contact OpenSea and manually change your account to be paid, remunerated from the resale of your work on a different platform. It's like anything. You really have to stay abreast and it's a lot of work. Anyway, so people say that this is a cryptocurrency scam and it's just manipulation and the art is awful and the people involved have a time horizon of three seconds and it's all just like a Ponzi scheme where people that are investors in crypto want to entice all of these artists to legitimate this scam, to buy crypto in order to mint NFTs. So you're creating this self-perpetuating situation. It's bad for the environment. Of course, anything that has an excessive energy consumption is bad. If you cast a 30-foot bronze sculpture or a 10-foot bronze sculpture, that has a ridiculous energy consumption and footprint. And again, I'm not an apologist. I'm not rationalizing. I'm just pragmatic. And of course, this is a national phenomenon. It's in its baby stages of development. And there's a million literally different things in the works to ameliorate some of these problems that are quite transgressive in the functionality of this present day workings of this new system. However, most NFTs sell for peanuts and literally nothing I've ever done is really any different from the way I'm doing it now, other than there's a new tool for me to use to and a new audience for me to address that is not so damn judgmental. They just look at the art digitally. And if it grabs their attention, sure, there are some kids that buy every drop from Nifty Gateway or Super Rare and do it for a quick buck. But those days are gone. What does good NFT art look like? And who do you think are some of the most important practitioners who are working right now? I did an exhibition which mixes some of the very early adapters, pioneers in the sector. One artist called Rayer Myers, Sarah Friend, who does community-oriented projects to help her community and to give back through technology to people. So, I mean, it's not just a bunch of people trying to make as much money in the shortest possible time. Darren Bader, who's in my exhibition, who's in the last Venice Biennale, he's one of the rare kind of artists whose work was sort of born to be on NFTs. And he's made objects, paintings, and augmented reality pieces. And look, I mean, I don't have a definitive notion of what constitutes a great piece of art. Or The Supreme Court was pressed to make a definition of pornography in the 50s. And the chief justice wrote a decision and said, actually, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And it's the same criteria that would apply to like me doing a studio visit at a university, whether it's Columbia, RISD, or anywhere else, and looking at art. And you can't describe the formula for writing a hit song, a best-selling book, or a hit movie you do something with love and passion and consideration of what's come before, what's being done now, and how something may be considered years from now. And I don't differentiate between art in any form. So a good NFT from a good painting is the same thing. What makes anything good? It's something that's aware of the history of its medium 
and reinterprets the past using what's at hand in the present that creates something that could potentially be relevant in the future. A lot of people who are making NFTs are not artists in a traditional sense at all. They're people like Paris Hilton, Ja Rule, John Cleese. Jack Dorsey sold his first ever tweet for some, you know, a couple of million dollars. And I wonder, what do you think is the impact that NFTs are going to have on the traditional art world and the traditional art business? Well, let's not forget that Brad Pitt is making paintings, Matt Dillon, Miley Cyrus. I mean, when I started my career in the 80s, art was literally like in a world unto itself. And it didn't have any mass cultural appeal, nor did it even have the slightest interest beyond the small little neighborhood that the traditional art world lived in. So I think that in a sense, by default, art was really the last bastion of creativity that wasn't fully exploited. In the UK, things were much different, where artists like the YBAs and Tracy Emin and Sarah Lucas, they communicated to a much broader base of people, partly because the UK has 10 daily newspapers and artists had a much more prominent role in communicating their activities to a much wider audience. There's been more growth in the art world in the last 20 years than the previous 200 years. And I think social media had a lot to do with this. And now it's drawn in a lot of people and a lot more interest. It's globalism in the greatest sense of the word. But I think NFTs, I mean, in a sense, it's not changing anything fundamentally. And at the same time, it's changing everything. And art reflects the means at hand to fabricate and to create. So technology in the last, like during the COVID crisis, I would say that simulation and the way people acclimatized themselves to technology was sort of greatly accelerated due to the fact that we were all captive in our homes and apartments with nothing to look at outside the window other than on a computer screen. So in a sense, it was kind of a perfect storm with NFTs, with these new ways of people relating to one another. It's changing so rapidly, it's hard to really see past the next six months to a year. But I think that things will continue to grow. There's going to be a shaking out and a consolidation, but there's going to be an enormous amount of new platforms and making things easier and easier for people to get involved. Jeff Koons always has this kooky, cult-like verbiage when he talks about, I want to make your life transformative and enable you to fulfill your greatest capabilities. I mean, iPhone created a universe of photographers and NFTs really create a whole other world of professional artists with access. But these things enable people with an artistic bent or inclination, make it that much easier to give it a try. And why not? It's all about access. And this really can increase access to people to an art market. I have two more questions for you. And one is that, you know, you're clearly a true believer in the power of NFTs and this transformative effect that they can have on art and maybe maybe society. But now there's been a recent drop in prices. The media is kind of gleefully attacking the NFT market and saying that, you know, it's lost more than half of its value since February. How do you defend NFTs at this moment where things are starting to look a little bit less promising. How do you see this in a broader context? Well, I mean, I'm not the Jeff Koons of NFTs. I don't think that NFTs are a panacea for anything. 
I have made digital art since the early 90s, and I never had a way to introduce it and to sell it. There was no easy methodology for me to participate in the art market like other people had access. I don't care about NFTs, to be honest with you. I care about one thing, and that's art. From art springs my teaching, my writing, my making, and NFTs for me are a tool to communicate what I do and to try to sell it and have it seen by people. That's it. So I'm not bandstanding for it. I'm not running for NFT president. I just think that for me, it's had a tremendous impact in my life and not just me because I've had literally feedback from you know hundreds of people People have just said, like, thank you, because I've been toiling away making art and no one took it seriously or I could never sell it. And now I've been able to sell it. OK, so we're in a shakeout period. Yes, it's down 70 percent, let's say 80 percent or whatever. But before that, in a very brief period of time, it was up a thousand percent. And let's make it perfectly clear. If I wanted to make money, I would have been a lawyer. or I would have been God knows anything else, even though I probably do awfully at that as well. But the money wasn't the reason I ever made an NFT, nor is it the reason I do it now. Because, look, it's very nice to be paid for what you're doing, what you love to do, and what you were born to do for all intents and purposes. And this has helped to make that a little bit easier during the course of my life. It wasn't anything I sought out. So, look, I have a third drop tomorrow. And, I mean, all the writing on the wall say that I'm going to do terribly. I fully expect to... Flounder, is it going to stop me from making another video for my next article on Artnet? No. I will make art. I will use whatever means are at hand, whatever technology I can get my hands on to the effect of expressing an idea. That's what it is. That's all it is. You know, these are tools that help people that want to say something, say it. And it's not more. It's not less. It's not some magical formula for this or that. It's nothing. It's just a way that people can do what they're doing in a new way, a different way, not even a new way. I have just one last question, which is that, you know, we recently went through a massive auction season in New York City where $1.3 billion was generated, showing the resurgence of the art market. And usually in your columns, this would be something that you would be totally fixated on. And yet the column that you published today, I don't think you even mentioned that these auctions took place. So I wonder, have you lost interest in the meat space, in these bulky paintings and sculptures? What do you make of the sales? Are they relevant to you? So I didn't go to freeze in the shed. And the most shocking thing, which I guess I should have dropped in a sentence, was that I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel any, like I was missing anything. And I've covered every lot of every auction for the last 15 years. I have analyzed every day sale transaction. I have looked at trends and I have dug for information and who's zooming who and who's buying and who's selling and who's screwing over this one. And you know what? Like I'm not an economist and I don't want to spend the rest of my life going to art fairs. That would be sad. And I don't want to croak in the aisle of a Basel, Basel blah. I did that because it was fun and exciting. And look, I love the provocation of pulling the curtains back. I was compelled to just share this information with people really just wanna know what the fuck is going on. How are these deals being done and who's doing them? And that was kind of my mission. And now COVID was an incredible 
period of taking stock and getting off of this kind of conveyor belt. And I was always late, but I was never going anywhere. And I realized from this period of reflection that, you know, I don't miss this. This wasn't entirely a good thing. And I don't want to spend my life being the ace reporter covering art fairs and other people selling art. I'd like to, I mean, this is my last shot. (laughs) So if my sale fails tomorrow at Nifty Gateway, it's not going to stop me from anything. Nothing will ever stop me from doing what I do. But I think if we don't change and grow as a human and as intellectually and with my family and my kids, I just think like I've had enough for a while. It got to be, I don't want to be doing the same thing, even though the auctions are different and the sales are different and the numbers are different. It's all the same. It's all the buying and selling of a shifting group of artists that are always the same. And it's all about the money. And it's, you never, I always say that I never get to speak about art because I'm in the art business and nobody wants to hear about the art. And that's partly why I teach. So I I remain like, I'm wildly optimistic about the future of art. And even though I'm less optimistic about the state of society, art is just profoundly resilient. And it's just one of the only positive things to come from humanity. You know, it's like the empathy and the passion that derives from something. And it's so childish at heart. For me, like, I didn't have a great childhood and I feel like a kid right now. I'm just, it's just a really exciting time to, you know, to be involved. I mean, it's exciting to find a whole new way to piss people off. I'll say that. (laughs) It's remarkable to see this transformation in you. And, you know, I've known you for years. I've been editing you for years. It's just that you have a a yen for what you're writing about and the kind of a thirst for discovery that is, um, I think is infectious. There's one quick thing. Like I had a phone call from someone who I never met or even heard of. He's the chairman of the Tefaf Fair, which most famously deals in antiquities and old masters. And this was a human being who, through my articles and through his own uh, research, has found out about NFTs. And other than most people closing down on the notion of something new and technologically based and unknown, he embraced the concept and approached me about potentially organizing some curatorial effort within the umbrella of Tefaf and the thought for me of like incorporating old masters next to an NFT was just absolutely made the hair stand up on my arm. And isn't that what this should all be about is like you said, just discovery, curiosity and fulfilling, growing and changing and and being open-minded to new things. Well, Kenny, it's great to have you on the show. And and I hope to have you back on the show to see what the next turn is your kind of rebirth as the Yoda of NFTs is going to take. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to check out Shattering the Glass Ceiling, our exciting podcast miniseries focusing on inspiring women in the art world, which concluded recently. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.